Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to be reading from John 20, 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All right, Grace. Well, thank you very much for reading that for us this morning. Uh, it's good to see your faces. Uh, as Alan Lucy mentioned, this is my last sermon with you as a resident of St. Andrews. Um, we aren't quite sure where we're going next. Uh, there are things in play, but we head back to the U.S. in mass in late May. And so we very much appreciate your prayers as we navigate this upcoming transition, which involves, you know, getting rid of a lot of stuff and selling things during a pandemic and uh, some really quite tricky administration, uh, but it will be fun. Maybe, maybe not, probably not. We need prayer. So um, it's the first Sunday after Easter. And that means we get to talk today about John's gospel, specifically about the story of Thomas's encounter with the resurrected Christ. And I want to begin by just revisiting the story. Grace read it lovely in a lovely way, but let's go, let's go over the story and then we'll say some things about it. So the story goes like this. It's evening on the first day of the week. That's to say Sunday on the Jewish calendar, Sunday evening of the resurrection. And the disciples have heard this amazing news about Jesus, but don't yet know what to make of it. Ten of them are hanging out behind locked doors because they're afraid. And suddenly Jesus, who's been in the business of breaking down doors all day, shows up in the middle of the room. Peace be with you, Jesus says which you have to think is probably just as much to put them at ease as it is to offer them as peace. And I think they fittingly freak out. Now, John says they rejoiced, but my guess is their rejoicing had the pure childlike quality of an absolute freak out. Ah! That's my response if Jesus showed up in the room when I thought he was dead. So Jesus says once again, peace be with you, which honestly might be a euphemism for calm down, dudes. And then he goes on. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And he breathes on them, which is a thing unthinkable in today's COVID landscape. 
just breathing all over everyone. You know, Jesus is unmasked and doing all this stuff. It's crazy. And then he announces, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he entrusts them with the ministry of forgiveness. Now, I think it's always funny what's left out of the Bible, namely that John fails to tell us how Jesus left the room. Obviously, he does. Does he vanish? Is there a flash of bright light? Does he wait until they're distracted and then like fold himself into the wall? Um, or does he just go out the door? Uh, I don't know. He appeared and he disappeared somewhat in the same way. So enter Thomas, who's been out. He wasn't there when it happened. Where was he? Was he buying groceries? Um, was he looking after the sick? Was he just on walkabout? Guys, I'm going for a walk. I'll be back. And he missed it, right? We don't know. He wasn't there. And he has the distinction in the Bible of being the first person to ask for evidence of the resurrection. The 10 tell him the good news. We have seen the Lord. And Thomas, in response, says, unless I see the body, no deal. Now, this is hilarious. An astonishing eight days go by. Not one, not two, not five, not seven. Eight days of the 10 disciples believing in the resurrected Jesus while Thomas holds out. You have to kind of imagine the intervening conversations between these guys. Is every conversation about this, every, I mean, they're living together, every meal, every walk, everything they do, they're like, Thomas, you got to believe. And he's like, no, unless I see it, I don't believe it. John doesn't tell us how this goes. It doesn't tell us how Thomas, how close Thomas may have come to, to cracking his resolve. But now it's Monday night, eight days later, and the doors are once again shut tight and Jesus appears and once again announces probably as much to put people at ease as anything else peace be with you. He turns immediately to Thomas and says, reach out, touch, feel, hold, see, don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. Now, a brief aside, if Jesus is merely a rabbi of good quality, right? He's a miracle worker, a man powerful in word and deed, specially anointed as a representative of God on earth through the resurrection, a prophet, then at this point, when Thomas says the words, my Lord and my God, good Rabbi Jesus ought to offer only one response, which is rebuke. He should say in response to Thomas, no, Thomas, these are fake Jesus words, by the way, no, Thomas, I am not God, but merely God's prophet. I am not God, but only God's king. Call me king, but do not call me God. For God is one, and he alone is worthy of our worship. Now, that's good Rabbi Jesus. What's noteworthy is the conspicuous absence of a rebuke in Jesus' recorded words. Instead, he says, do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are they who do not see and yet have believed. After these words, John, author of the gospel, turns to you, the reader, and he makes the connection from Jesus to the disciples, to Thomas, and to us, really quite explicit, writing, these things have been written so that you may believe, you, reader, you sitting in St. Andrews 2,000 years later, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So here the gospel connects to us right where we are. Now, as always, there's lots we can say about a passage like this, but I want to focus in on three of them. And first, I want to talk about faith, about how belief and doubt interact in this story about Thomas. Second, I want to talk about the spirit and new creation, focusing on the business of Jesus breathing on the disciples. And then third and finally, I want to talk about John's invitation to us. And I think all three things come together. Now, Thomas, in my estimation, has gotten one of the worst raps in the entire New Testament. He's been given the nickname Doubting Thomas, right? 
And that nickname is applied to people who should believe, but simply won't. Don't be such a doubting Thomas, we say. And we typically don't mean it as a compliment. We mean you're being belligerent. You're refusing to accept things. You're just resisting when you shouldn't, any number of things. Now, personally, I see something quite different in Thomas's story. And very, I see Thomas as a person who asks good questions and then gets good answers. It's reasonable to request verification for a claim like, oh, Jesus who died is alive. I know, and he appeared to us as if kind of by magic while the door was shut, but you have to take my word on it. That's a not unreasonable claim to want evidence for. And it seems to me that in response to the disciples' claim, Thomas's inquiry is perfectly normal and reasonable. There's some bad history here. You see, what seems to have happened is that we, who look back at this episode, interpret it through a lens that views faith as good and doubt as bad. So we've been taught, often quite explicitly in the church, that to have doubts is the antithesis of your faith. So to be a doubting person is only a few short steps away from being a wicked, rejected person on the utter outside of life in the church. You'd better not doubt. So doubts are always considered liabilities. Now, I think this is an utterly inadequate picture of how faith works in the Christian life, because faith and doubt are not opposites. They're not mutually exclusive irreconcilables. When I've taught people, like when I've taught students and parishioners in the past about these things, I like to draw two pictures. I've drawn them for you this morning. Oh, and are they elegant stick figures or what? You'll get to see in a second. Um, I like to draw two pictures. So the first, we picture faith in a um, faith as a kind of bubble around the person. I'll hold it up and then we'll talk about it. Oh, it's, do you see? There's a stick figure. It's an elegant stick figure and there's a bubble and then there's little arrows going out. Let me, let me describe it and then we'll come back to the picture and explain it better to you, all right? So faith is in the bubble. The, it, to be inside um, the bubble is to have faith. Outside the bubble are your doubts. And when you increase your faith, you're increasing the size of your bubble. You're increasing the size of your knowledge, of your perfection, of the things you have on the inside. Now, if on this model I admit to having doubts, then that means I've allowed something forbidden, something outside to come inside the orb of my faith. On this model, faith is always a fight against your doubts. It's a fight for greater certainty and for greater knowledge and for greater purity and for greater otherliness from the world. These are the things we're fighting for. Faith is a fight on this model. But there's another model of faith we can go by too. On this model, I draw the person sitting within a frame. All right, and here's my ready. Oh, second beautiful drawing. Sorry about this. All right. So uh, see there's stuff on the other side. So you got a person stick figure in the middle and you got the frame working around and now the doubts are all around and inside what's going on. I'm sorry, my camera is, is nice, but it's not nice enough to show you how nice my drawings are. Um, blame the camera, not the artist, please. So um, on this model, faith and doubt are always coexisting, sometimes in the most painful of ways. There are lots of doubts inside me and around me, and they obscure my vision and understanding. But, and this is really critical, surrounding my doubts, containing them, providing a frame for my doubts is faith. Faith is my trust in the fact that while I do not and cannot know all that is going on, I can trust in the God who does know these things. My faith is in the God who does know what's going on. So faith becomes a matter of resting on God's knowledge in the midst of my own ignorance and incompetence. Now, it's a very different disposition from the faith that has to fight for its own life. Now, one of the things I like about my second model of faith is that it highlights our need for the church. 
You see, on this model, there's things that I see clearly because of my narrative and my experience and my training that you don't see. And so we need one another because I see things that you don't see. But you know what? There's things that you see about the life in Christ that I don't see clearly. And I need you. In other words, the picture of the whole faith requires the church for all of us to have a sense for what God is doing at any point in time. I can't take the one piece of clarity I have and use it to judge everyone else in the church. That's not quite the way it works. I do need it to bring. It's important. We all need these clarities. Uh, but we can't weaponize our faith and use it against one another in these things. Now, um, on the model of faith where to be a doubting Thomas is considered a rebuke, it follows that anytime we question God, we're being faithless. The suggestion is that questions are wicked distractions, that the faithful are known by their immediate and unquestioning trust of God. Have you guys heard the, the Sunday school story about the student who stands, a young child stands up and asks the teacher, teacher, what was God doing before he created the world? And the teacher, frustrated with the question, said he was creating hell for students who ask questions like that. Um, and this, although, a, you know, a, kind of a joke, and I actually think it has roots in Augustine. Anyway, um, although, although the joke is, is, is sincere, it does point to something real, is that teachers often view questions as threats rather than as something that can build built upon and as strengths and as assets for our faith. And it comes from this model of viewing a doubting Thomas as a person who brings questions when they should be believing. How dare they? And so we operate with the suggestion that questions are wicked distractions, that the faithful are known by their immediate and unquestioning trust of God. But we need to look more closely at this text because Thomas is simply not rebuked by Jesus for his questions. Instead, he asks good questions. I want to see. And he's given good answers. Jesus shows up and says, see, touch, believe. I think no treatment of this text is right that doesn't admit that Jesus answers Thomas's request. Um, he doesn't rebuke him for it. So I don't want you to go away thinking that belief and doubt are opposites. And they exist together, often in awkward tension in our lives and hearts. It's okay to have doubts, but we should be having them in community and with one another. It's the only way we get strengthened through them. Faith is not about you having perfect knowledge. Faith is about you living faithfully with other people. So let's talk about the second thing I had in mind this morning, which is this business of the spirit and new creation. Um, now, I mean specifically the somewhat strange bit in the passage about Jesus breathing on the disciples. But when we remember how John's gospel begins, it's not so strange after all. John's gospel opens with the phrase, in the beginning was the word. And here John is consciously evoking the beginning of Genesis, where we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, John's opening links Jesus, the word, to the creative act of God. John is opening with an early divine claim that the Jesus of whom we, he is about to speak was there with God at the creation of the world. Now, there are many other connections with this Genesis story throughout John's gospel. One of them featured in the resurrection story last week. So when we read John 20, 15, that Mary confused Jesus with the gardener, um, this is very subtle, but with Genesis in mind, we might remember another time when God walked in a garden on the Sabbath, which is to say on the seventh day of creation. And here Jesus walks as a gardener, having made the whole world new in his body. John has this stuff in mind. And this is not the only reference to creation that John has here. Recall that when God creates Adam in Genesis 2, he forms him from the dust of the ground, and then, of course, breathes on him. It's the breath of God that animates the lifeless Adam. And this should, be make, it fear, this should make it fairly clear to us, given John's use of Genesis, what he has in mind here. 
that Jesus, as God, now breathes new life upon his disciples. This is the beginning of new creation. This is day one of the last days that Jesus talks about in the scriptures. Christ, first fruits of the resurrection, offers the promise of resurrection to all his followers by means of this Holy Spirit. And so as Christ descended under the waters of baptism as death and death, now he comes out alive and extends the promise of life to us. And everyone who's received the Holy Spirit has received the promise excuse me, of resurrection life with Christ. By his breath, we are being made new, a new creation. It's what God is doing in us. It's pretty good news, I think. So I want to finish this morning by talking about John's invitation to us. How do these things come together? Um, and the first thing to note might seem obscure to you, but I think it's actually pretty important. We should note that Thomas, like most of the disciples, had a nickname. Remember, Jesus is giving nicknames to everyone. He calls one of them Rocky, and then he's got, he's got uh, James and John, the Sons of Thunder, Rocky and the Thunder Boys. That sounds like a great band, doesn't it? Um, and Iscariot has a nickname. And then we've got Thomas called Didymus, the twin. So uh, Thomas gets called Twinny um, throughout his life. And that's kind of funny. Jesus, it was, he liked nicknaming people. Uh, but it begs the question, who is Thomas's twin brother? And I want to submit to you that John, in his wisdom, has cast a role in his gospel, even for you, the reader. And that you, the reader, are Thomas's twin. You are just like Thomas. You have received news of the resurrection by means of eyewitness testimony. Jesus appeared to others while you were out of the room, 2,000 years out of the room, uh, the distance, instead of eight days. But in this respect, you are no different from Thomas, that you are receiving their testimony and not your own eyewitness account. And like Thomas, you're now challenged, albeit with a long distance of time, to entrust yourself to their testimony. And that's why Jesus says these words to Thomas at the end, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus is talking about you and me. He's talking about all the people in the church who are going to believe and have not seen, all the twins of Thomas who received by testimony what the disciples received by evidence. It's a strong blessing upon us. And so Thomas's twins, we, we receive the word that John writes in verses 30 and 31. And here John says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones I've accounted, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This book was written so that you could believe. That's why it's here. Now we have, um, we have some special help in our believing because of the presence of the Spirit. So the Spirit breathed out on John and Peter and James and Bartholomew and Andrew, and now he works through his church, his people, and his scriptures. And the Spirit is eager to enliven our belief, to meet us in our belief. Um, we have special help in this belief. And I wanna focus on this special help for just a moment. I've been reading A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God lately, and if you've not read any Tozer, he's great. Um, he's worth reading, and he's worth your time, and he's got some lovely things to say. Um, and he has, he has some great things, especially to say about faith and the Spirit and the Scriptures. And I'm going to read you a passage from um, that book right now. So here's Tozer's words. 
The Bible will never be a living book to us until we are convinced that God is articulate in his universe. In other words, unless we understand that God is speaking, we will never hear his voice in the Bible quite accurately. He goes on. I believe that much of our religious unbelief is due to a wrong conception of and a wrong feeling for the scriptures of truth. So here's the wrong conception. A silent God suddenly began to speak in a book, and when the book was finished, he lapsed back into silence again forever. Now we read the book as the record of what God said when he was, for a brief time, in a speaking mood. With notions like that in our heads, how can we believe? The facts are that God is not silent, has never been silent. It is the nature of God to speak. The second person of the Holy Trinity is called the Word. The Bible is the inevitable outcome of God's continuous speech. It is the infallible declaration of his mind for us put into our familiar human words. Now, what I like especially about Tozer's, Tozer's thought is his understanding that the speaking God is always his spirit to us, but that in the book, in this book, we encounter a special and especially trustworthy distillation of that voice. That by the speaking spirit who is present in his church and this world, when we encounter the testimony of the disciples, our belief is charged and empowered by that spirit. It's like when two drops of water meet and they leap to meet one another. The spirit in you and the spirit in the word rejoice and leap to meet one another. Rejoice in the harvest of belief. God is eager for belief within you, and he's eager to make that belief happen. Um, it's not something that you have to force and drum up and build up like, oh, I'm going to get my faith all in place and then I'll jump. It's not how it works. It's not about fighting to make things work. It's about leaning back and trusting in the testimony and letting the spirit do its work in you. And this ultimately is what John wants for us. He wants us to trust. But he doesn't want a blind, unseeing trust. He knows that faith is difficult. He knows the testimony. He knows, he knows that what he's telling you is in some ways hard to believe. I want you to believe that I met God and I walked with him and lived with him for a period of three years on earth and that he died and came back to life and now he wants to save you. I want you to believe me in this. I know it's incredible, but you got to believe because it's true. This is where John holds, this, holds the line. It's not a trust that views doubts as vicious liabilities. It's a trust that invites questions, a trust that says, no, I want you to believe knowingly. I want you to believe having asked your questions and brought your doubts with you. Let's examine them together. But it is one that measures all those doubts and difficulties against the faithfulness of Jesus and one that ultimately chooses the resurrected Christ. Um, this morning, as always, we have a chance to believe and to believe maybe in a fresh way. Um, I want to return just very briefly to my two, uh, my two elegant pictures, right, and uh, which are, you know, for which, you know, I should do, I should hold up. Sorry, I've got a solution. There, now the light's not coming through them, okay? Um, some of you have been living on this model of faith where you view doubts as a problem and where you're trying to have it all perfect and kept together yourself. And some of you have never had the opportunity to embrace your doubts and relax in faith in the God who is bigger than your doubts. And I want you to have a chance this morning to shift your thinking about faith. If you've been holding it tightly together, if you feel like you've been gripping and holding on just by the clawing fingernails of your life, holding on to faith, I want to give you an invitation to let go and trust in the Lord God. 
to say, God, you're bigger than my doubts and you're bigger than what I know and you're bigger than the stuff I'm dealing with. And I'd rather trust you than, than try to manage this. In fact, I simply can't manage this anymore. And if that's where you are this morning, um, I'm gonna lead us in prayer in just a minute into that. Um, some of you perhaps have been on the fence. Maybe, maybe, you've never, um, maybe you've never really believed in the resurrection. Maybe, maybe you've been waiting for evidence. There's different ways you can believe. Um, you can examine evidence, that's okay. Look at the evidence, figure out what's going on, see what's there. Um, but another key aspect in belief is the people around you. Ask them why they believe. Now this puts a challenge on those of you who claim Christ and have claimed Christ for a long time. If you've believed and you can't give an accounting for why you believe, uh, maybe this is a time to think about that. Are you prepared to support the people around you as they ask questions? Are you threatened by their questions? Do you have an old, did you have a Sunday school teacher as a kid who smashed questions out of you with their, with their anger and frustration and doubts, who projected their fear onto your faith? It's time to, it's time to grow through that. I want to pray for you all. And then I'm going to hand things back to Alistair. Um, Lord Jesus Christ, you know that um, this church belongs to you. This church is your people. Um, you've called it, you've led it, and we live in a continuous relationship with all your church throughout history by the Spirit. I pray for a special outpouring of your Spirit, not just this morning, but in all the weeks to come, that as we seek you in belief, you'd meet us like those drops of water where the smallest inclination of our hearts towards you is met by you and we are enlarged and enriched and have the sense of your carrying presence. I pray against the idea, Lord, that following you means we have to have it all figured out. I pray against the, the, the poison that says that we have to have certainty and certain belief in order to be faithful. Lord, we only have to be certain of one thing, and that is our trust in you. That's it. We only have to have our hearts fixed on one thing, which is you, Jesus. So help us to fix our eyes ever afresh on you. And I pray for all the believers at um, all the believers at KV, all the people who know you, Jesus, and have trusted you. And I pray that we would each fix our attention so magnificently on you and you alone that when people look to us for help and when people look to us for assistance and partnership and to carry their doubts, that they would see you more than they'd see us. I thank you for this church. I pray your continued blessing upon it. I pray for its enrichment, its blessing. Um, as Jim led uh, months ago, I pray, Lord, that you bless the more of the current vision of the church. Bless the more and make yourself known in St. Andrews and the world through this place. This thing, these things I pray and ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.